the Ontario Nurses Association is the union for nurses in Ontario, and we represent over 60,000 registered nurses and some allied health professionals in all healthcare sectors in the province. Uh, last year, over 1,200 registered nursing positions were lost in the province, and to date in 2015, we're just nudging up around 600, and we've just had announcements coming down this week being told that we're going to lose even more. So our nurses, the members that we represent, have been really clear. They want us speaking out because most times the public generally isn't aware of what's happening in the healthcare sector or the system unless they're a patient themselves or a family member is. I hear members of the public, including my own family, say, gee, everybody's really busy. They're really always going, going, going. And, and that's because their workloads or their patient assignment numbers are rising. Um, they are in hospitals in particular. People who are in hospital are there because they are needing medical nursing care urgently. And once uh, they come into hospital, I think most people know there's fewer and fewer hospital beds, so the people that are in them are needing uh, serious care. As, the, as there continues to be this, this cutting, and you'll hear words such as this, this bleeding of registered nursing positions, the nurses who are left behind and those that are leaving the system here in Ontario and going elsewhere to work, quite frankly, are saying to us, you know, that they are worried for patients and they're worried for their families because there's fewer of them to be at the bedside and to have their hands and eyes on patients. And uh, we know from research and from the stories we hear every day that there's an impact on patients. And that impact is that they are having more complications, they are having to stay in hospital longer, and unfortunately, in some cases, mortality rates and morbidity rates are rising. This is Nursing Student Narratives. I'm Claire Shaysgreen, the host of this podcast. You just heard from Vicki McKenna, who is the Vice President of the Ontario Nurses Association. For episode number two of our show, The Practice is Political, we're talking about the political side of nursing. Vicki is responsible for the political action and professional issues portfolio of ONA. She's also been a registered nurse for many, many years and continues to work in the day surgery unit at the London Health Sciences Centre. She also, somehow, dedicates a lot of her time to lobbying the government for better conditions for nurses, and therefore, better patient care. In fact, we had an in-studio interview scheduled with Vicky, but she ended up being unable to leave the hotel that she was at bargaining for hospital funds in Ontario, and we had to conduct it over the phone instead. So when you listen to her interview, you can picture the VP of ONA taking 20 minutes away from doing really important advocacy work to sit in a small hotel room to talk to us. For listeners outside of Canada, last month we had a much-anticipated federal election where we ousted the Conservative government that had led this country for nearly 10 years and elected a majority Liberal government led by Justin Trudeau. This was a big moment for Canada, and many Canadians are feeling pretty excited about the promises made by the Trudeau government during their campaign, including renewing the commitment to strengthening Canada's publicly funded universal healthcare system. So we wanted to ask Vicky what this new government is going to mean for nurses, other healthcare professionals, and really, well, everyone. 
Um, people may not know, but there was a national health care accord, and it was a 10-year deal, you might call it, uh, from the, with the federal government and the provinces in regard to health care funding for the provinces. It's true that the provinces themselves um, are responsible for the delivery of health care. But the federal government has a very big leadership role as to what kind of health care that is, but also, of course, funding transfers. And so that health care accord that was a 10-year deal expired in 2014. There has not been another deal or health accord negotiated with the provinces. And in fact, the previous government had full intention to continue to cut health care funding transfers to the provinces. And in particular for Ontario, that was going to be a massive cut in health care transfer dollars. Uh, the government that's just been elected has been very clear in the recent statement that they are going to meet with the provinces, that they will negotiate a health accord deal so that the funding numbers are clear so the provinces can plan and know what transfer funds they will receive from the federal government. And we believe that's good news. Uh, we have also, as a national body of nurses in the Canadian Federation of Nursing Unions, have reached out to the new government and to the new health minister and the prime minister to say that we are willing and able at any moment, to <laughs> any time, to meet and discuss what we know is happening in Ontario, but right across this country. And uh, we've uh, received indication, not formal meeting dates, but indications that they are willing to sit and discuss that with us. Previous government had no uh, interest, nor even uh, any, any kind of interest in meeting or discussing what was happening for nurses in the, in the province and, and across this country. Health is a political issue. Community members becoming ill from lack of shelter and access to clean water in Attawapiskat and other First Nations communities in Canada. People claiming bankruptcy after undergoing ultra-expensive cancer treatments. A spike in patient mortality rates when nursing jobs are cut because the budget just won't allow for more staff. These stories make headlines worldwide and they point to the ways in which the laws, policies, and ideologies that form our political landscape are profoundly connected to people's health. So if health is a political issue, does that make nursing inherently political? What do politics look like in our day-to-day -day practice? How can we make our voices heard to cause change? And where do our personal politics, the framework that directs our beliefs, values, our way of being in the world, fit into our nursing practice. This is where we want to start. All right, so my name is Ash, and my pronouns are she and her. Ash is a senior year nursing student and an activist for reproductive and LGBT rights. Before coming into nursing, Ash worked at a sexual assault crisis center in Waterloo. The question from patients of, are you dating somebody? Of course, the question is never said like that. The question is always, do you have a boyfriend? I'm a very chatty person. I like sitting with clients. And the number one beauty of being a nursing student is that you have the time to sit with people and be like, tell me about your 18 million grandchildren. Tell me about your life going through the war. You know, nurses don't get to do that. I can think of one client in particular who was a guy. Um, this was in an oncology floor. He was, he knew he was at t getting to the end of his life. And he loved 
to me, it seemed like he really loved just having the chance to chat with somebody. Uh, and he was the first client who looked at my tattoos and instead of saying like, oh, what do those mean? Instead of saying that, he was like, oh, cool tats. I was like, thanks, thanks. So we got to chatting. I was asking about his life, whatever. And I'm, I'm in retrospect, I realized that I had put down my, put down my guard isn't the right word, but I, I had become comfortable with this guy in a way that I usually aren't, that, I'm not that comfortable. We're sitting together and he's like, so do you have a boyfriend? So in that moment, I, usually my response, you know, I do what nursing school tells us to do. I reframe the question and make it about the client. I don't answer it directly. You know, we're not supposed to share our personal information with our clients, supposed to be professional, all that jazz, right? Well, with this guy, I was like, you know what? I don't really want to distance myself in that way from him right now. Was that a mistake? Maybe. You know, I'm still a novice. I'm still working it out. I'm still figuring out what my professional identity is going to be like, what my practice is going to be. In that moment, I decided to be, you know, not overshare, but state very briefly, like, um, actually, I, I tend not to date men, but if your question is, am I seeing somebody? Yes, I am. But why don't you tell me more about yourself? What, you know, so I, I still tried to use the technique of like, be, to keep it brief, frame it more toward the client. But that was the first time I chose to try and share something about myself. The guy just like stopped talking, looked at me and was like, no way. <laughs> And, and that was it. And then, and then we didn't talk about it anymore. And we went back to talking about his own life and his own troubles. Again, was that a mistake? I have no idea. Was it refreshing? Yes. It was so refreshing to not have to give my stock answer of like, no, I don't, but I'm really happy that you'll continue to think of me as a straight person. Like, that. I'm not a straight person. I'm not your straight nurse. Like, I'm a nurse who it's... Like, I still want to be professional. I still want to develop a professional identity. I still want to make sure that I'm always making our interactions with the client. But in denying that I exist, I am, I feel like I'm kind of denying that like queer people exist. How do I be visible or not as a nurse? And how do I, how am I allowed to orient my work, orient my practice, orient my professional identity that aligns with who I actually am and in such a way that I don't have to roll with the assumptions that people are making about me. Like I decided at 16 that I wasn't gonna be a closeted person. I decided at 16 I was gonna be a flaming homo and you know, people can react however they want to to that. So like, do I have to pretend that that all of a sudden stops or like doesn't exist now that I'm a nurse? That just seems so actually like deeply unethical to me that as a person you have to stop existing because you're supposed to be a professional. It's challenging to be political in the workplace, no matter what profession you're in. But what's so conflicting is that nursing is a field in which we are actually taught to be political. More than that, we're expected to be political when it comes to advocating for our patients. But then when you get into practice, advocating for your patients is not so easy. And in fact, sometimes it's met with resistance. Here's Mel Spence, a recently graduated nurse. 
Nursing and healthcare is political. Any nursing student who's done even a week on any floor, and for anyone else who's listening, even if you've been just a, a patient and you've interacted with the healthcare system in some way, you might understand that healthcare, healthcare is political, healthcare is not neutral. So what that means for, for nursing students and for us as nurses as well, is that we, we don't get to opt out of politics as a nurse, we just have to choose how we're going to participate. So we can either decide to participate in ways that are going to better, you know, better the lives of the people that we're caring for, or we can see something going on and decide, well, I don't have the capacity to intervene right now. But even, even that is a decision. The decision to not intervene is also a political decision because it carries consequences. The reason why I chose to enter nursing in the first place is because I was already involved in political activism and I thought that I wanted to use nursing as a platform, as a leverage from which to kind of further further that work because when we're nurses we are up close and personal with people suffering and we can use that knowledge put it within a broader framework as a way of understanding what's happening more broadly in our society, how certain groups of people are being disadvantaged, and use that as a way to try to make action and get people to take notice. Um, so explicitly, as much as I wanted to be a nurse for any other reason, I wanted to be a nurse for that reason. And it's kind of like it's kind of messed up that people themselves who are affected by a lot of these issues that cause ill health, that their voices aren't taken as seriously, say, by media or by government, that you need people like nurses and doctors to get out and say, oh, this is an important issue, and then media and then government will say, oh, well, the nurses and doctors are saying this is an important issue. It, you know, it's, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a conflict because I know that that's kind of a messed up system, and and I'm participating in it, but I'm doing that consciously. And in the meantime, I feel like it's the system that exists. And until the revolution, <laughs> I will have like I'm living within this system, and I can and I can be honest about that and use that as a platform. And when you know when you've had training as a political activist, what it does, I think, or what at least what it did in my experience was it sensitized me to be aware of human suffering. And not just that, but to also have a framework, an analytical framework from which to understand that suffering and from which to act upon that suffering to try to change it. As a nursing student, I did my medical surgical placement on a surgical oncology floor. It was really where people would go after having surgery uh, for some kind of cancer. The floor itself was like an open square with the nursing station right in the middle. So from the nursing station, you could, you could kind of see around and you could walk that square and kind of see the nursing station from most angles. There is a particular smell and it's a combination of antiseptic and decay, really. <laughs> There's other stuff in there too, <laughs> but that's, that's what, I mean, that's what, uh, that's what you will smell if you're on a floor. On this particular floor, there were, there were staffing issues. Um, everyone had a huge patient load. 
the nurses that I were following would have at least four patients and uh, we would just be basically running ragged the whole time trying to you know trying to go from one room to another sort of like using your finger to plug a hole in a sinking ship just trying to get just trying to make things okay enough and then the other thing is, is that they had also cut back on the environmental staff, the people whose responsibility it is to clean up the rooms. There were two people for that entire floor. What that meant is that a lot of times there were overflowing bins of old, um, you know, bandages and gauze and everything else that you'd use to pack a wound. A lot of people in surgical oncology had a lot of wounds that needed a lot of dressings, a lot of constant dressing changes. So there was, so this you have the smell, you have the overflowing garbage. So it's kind of a, it's a bit of a chaotic environment. And within that environment, on one day, I encountered a patient and she had cancer and it was, um, probably would be palliative. And um, she was in a lot of pain. And she was not getting any relief from her scheduled meds. You know, every four hours she got X milligrams of morphine and then if she was still in pain we could give her a little top up every hour and that's in fact what we were doing but even with that top up she was calling for her medication every hour uh, and that's a that's a red flag that someone's pain is not being adequately controlled. She was saying her ten her her pain was about an an 8 out of 10 and you could you could see it on her face. She was cr constantly crying. You didn't have to go to nursing school to understand that this was a person in pain. And it moved me on a very visceral level and I, I couldn't believe that the nurse that I was working with, I mean as busy as we were, but the nurse that we were working with wasn't gonna advocate for this person to have better pain management. And so because of all of my years of um, thinking about and paying attention to and responding to human suffering and that being a reason why I wanted to get into nursing, I never felt like I had a choice. It was a very simple equation in my mind. It was like, this person is in pain. I need to do something about it. I, I didn't even think like, oh, what should, no, I was just like, I had to do something about it. And so I talked to my nurse and she kind of wrote me off and she was like, we don't have time to deal with that. And so, you know, I played the nursing student card and I was just like, well, I don't, you know, I just think, um, I, you know, I'd like to get practice and trying to talk to, you know, work with the interprofessional team to, you know, for, to help my patients and like blah, blah, blah. And eventually she's like, okay, yeah, go, 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 go. And so I ended up, you know, we got in touch with the, the physician who was overseeing her care. And eventually, I think it took a couple days, but they, they did, they did adjust her medication. They, thank God they changed it. So they upped her scheduled dose, um, which meant that she had better she had much better pain control. It was only afterwards that I was thinking, yeah, people, people might handle that differently. Maybe if people didn't have that kind of politicization, weren't, you know, for whatever reason, weren't able to kind of tune in or maybe were able to tune in, but felt like 
ah, there's nothing I can do, I'm so busy. And maybe that's another thing too. Being a political activist means that you're trained to do something and try to do something that you think is going to be really hard and probably impossible to do. But you do it anyways and you kind of suck it up and swallow your pride and, you know, gather your courage and you go for it because the alternative is just worse. Small political actions, like speaking out for adequate pain management, are made by nurses every day, and they can have a huge impact on a patient's life. But what happens when quieter attempts to advocate for patients are not heard? Our final story is from Jessica Hales, the nurse practitioner for Street Health in Toronto. For those of you who don't know, Street Health is a dedicated community health organization that's based in Toronto. It improves the health of homeless and underhoused people by addressing the social determinants of health through programs, services, education, and advocacy. With more than 5,000 clients, Street Health provides outreach nursing, mental health support, case management, HIV, AIDS, and Hep C prevention, a secure mail service, and identification, replacement, and storage. They do a ton. Before starting this story, a quick trigger warning. This story contains discussions of sexual violence against women. So over the five years I've been working at Street Health, the city has been struggling to meet the, the requirements for shelter. It's very hard for people to find shelter beds. There's populations that have a hard time accessing shelter beds if they're out late, if they're using substances, if they can't abide by curfews. Somebody was reviewing our security cameras, a staff member here, and just happened to come across a woman who was sleeping on our front steps. And clients often sleep on our front steps because we're right along Dundas, which is a busy street, and it's a well-lit driveway. So I think they feel safe there. And I guess the woman maybe was using, and she was passed out, and she was uh, sexually assaulted twice by two men. One man showed up and left, and then a second man showed up uh, a few minutes after him, and we weren't really sure who she was. We reported the incident to police and got what I would say was a pretty poor police response. We had video footage of what these two men looked like. We were very concerned that they were a risk to other community members, and, you know, there was no media release um, on behalf of the police, and there was no media response at all. So... These men were sort of just out there, and aside from just a report on the police website, nothing was really done to try to figure out who they were and apprehend them. You know, sometimes I find that it can be political what you can and can do within an organization. So I sort of started working on my off time, on my personal time to get um, a better response. So I partnered with some women from... OCAP in the downtown east who had already been working to have the city approve a 24-hour drop-in space for women. We started by contacting the media and holding a press conference and we we did get a an article about the incident in the star. We did some flyering. We had a small delegation show up at Shelter Support and Housing Administration, asked to speak to them about opening up a 24-hour drop-in. And eventually, City Hall did approve two 24-hour drop-ins for women, for people that identify as women, so trans women as well. 
So we were very happy about that. And then the city was passing the budget for that year and they forgot to include the funding for the 24 hour drop-ins in the budget. We had, you know, met with the city numerous times after that and we just weren't getting a response and the drop-ins just weren't being open. Like the money was not being released. In that winter, it was this past winter that we had like several homeless deaths and uh, shelter occupancy rates were well above 90%. And I was trying to find a bed for a female client of mine in, you know, the all the women's shelters were full and she didn't feel comfortable staying at a men's shelter because she had been, you know, bad experiences in the past with violence and sexual harassment and, and things like that. Um, even the detox beds were full. I was kind of stuck. Like I had no idea where to send her. It was those types of situations that I guess drove me to take action. We did a sit-in. We went into a shelter support and housing office building. We went in and described who we were. There's five of us, all of us were women. And it was the International Day to End Violence Against Women. So we identified ourselves as service providers and explained that, you know, we weren't there to really cause harm to anybody, that we're just really concerned. And we said that we weren't going to leave until somebody from the city would speak to us about when these drop-ins would be open. We hung a banner out the window that said, we demand shelter and safety. We were sort of just literally sitting around the office. They brought us water. We're sitting there pretty peacefully until the decision came from the city that nobody was going to meet with us. It was about that time that we were arrested. Unfortunately, even though we were pretty polite and it, like nobody resisted arrest, two of the women who were in the group with us were thrown across the room by police and called derogatory names. We were held for about eight hours and our cell phones were confiscated and it took us about a month to get our cell phones back. Eventually our charges were dropped. We did get some media coverage. Um, There's an article sort of in the main page of the GTA section. And then we followed up with some deputations and things and eventually the funding wars were released. They were supposed to be open like last March. They're sort of both just open and functioning now. There's always like a lot of criticism about, you know, perhaps getting arrested being radical or something like that. But I see it as, you know, people ride after sports events sometimes. <laughs> like, this is like, in my opinion, I'm seeing human rights violations on a daily basis, you know. And I, I think the nurses have an obligation to speak out. I, I really do. Let us know what you think by getting in touch on our Facebook page, Twitter, or website, www.nursingstudentnarratives.com. This episode was produced by Amanda Sissons, Melissa Mock, Marty Butler, Claire Shays-Green, and Hilary Smith. A special thanks to Growth Radio. Till next time. Nurses are highly skilled and educated individuals. They have a huge, broad breadth of knowledge that they carry, and they, they have such great skills, and that carries some little afraid of me. It almost feels like a burden because they understand so much the impact of their care and how if they can't deliver the care in the time or in the quantity or quality that they would like to, they fear that it, it, it's harmful to patients. And that's distressing to nurses uh, each and every day. You need to stand together and not just 
as, you know, send up an individual to see how it goes. Speaking as one, the collective voice of nurses is very powerful. 